welcome to Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for joining us. If it's your first time, thank you so much for giving us a shot. And for all of you who are returning to us every Tuesday, really appreciate you. You're going to love today's episode. I love stories, right? I think we can all relate to storytelling. And even if like your story, you can't necessarily relate to it. Like our guest today, he and a team of people rode across the Atlantic several times. They shattered any expectations that they had for their team when it was all said and done. And now Jason Caldwell, who is an author, a speaker, and an extreme athlete. I mean, he's just a, quite an athlete from everything he says in the story. But, you know, even if it's something like, you know, I don't row, right? But where he's dealing with teams and it takes a team to function and do a great job, get across the Atlantic as they did and the storytelling around all that and how they're able to function as a team. It's something we can all relate to. So I'm really excited. I got a chance to speak with Jason. He's up to some big things. He just released the book, Navigating the Impossible, Build Extraordinary Teams and Shatter Expectations. And I think he's up to a lot of really cool things. So I think you're going to be hearing more and more about Jason. And we were really fortunate to have him on the podcast. So if you love this episode, please go to Apple Podcasts. That really helps us continue to book great guests on this show and for people like you to find the podcast. So really appreciate the support. Enjoy the episode. And, you know, of course, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, any of those places where you like to connect. I'd love to connect with guests and I encourage you to do that. So enjoy the episode with Jason Caldwell. Hey, Jason, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you on. Thanks for having me. You have an extraordinary story. In fact, you're an extraordinary athlete. You played baseball and had a injury that took you away from baseball, the Tommy John surgery. Is that painful or what? Well, I don't know how painful the surgery is because I actually chose not to get it, which is what ended up preventing my career is the split tendon after one pitch was painful. Yes. Gosh. And so you ended up in rowing. How did that all happen? Yeah, you know what? Just had a great coach and mentor. I went to Sonoma State University up in the wine country in California. Great baseball team, played there for a couple of years, but then like we talked about, got injured and I'm in the weight room the following fall, you know, my senior year and kind of a little rudderless, no pun intended, and trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. And I get the rowing coach comes up to me and, you know, it's kind of a younger guy and, you know, unassuming guy, but says, hey, you know, I didn't even know what rowing was. I'm thinking whitewater rafting. I didn't know what it was, but he is persistently yeah. pushing me to try out for the team. You know, yeah, it's not going to hurt your elbow. It's kind of a tall person sport. You're a tall guy. You're athletic. Give it a shot. And he was so annoying that kind of just to get him off my back, I went. And that was kind of the beginning of my rowing career. I actually never looked back after that. So That coach, it sounded like in reading your book, it sounded like he was kind of cherry picking some of these amazing athletes who maybe had an injury and needed to be onto something else. Is that kind of how it went down? Completely accurate. I didn't know it at the time, but I wasn't the only athlete he was going around. I mean, he was literally looking for people on all different sports teams across the campus, basketball, football, baseball, tennis, whatever it was. He basically went to all the coaches and said, give me a list of all the guys that you cut or that got injured. And that's what he went after. He went after all these athletes that basically had a chip on their shoulder and had something to prove because... He knew something that I certainly didn't know at the time, which was the worst thing is to not be part of something. And he knew that all these people that played sports their whole lives and were part of these teams and all of a sudden had it taken away from them because either they got cut or they got injured. 
they were desperate to find that next something and he was going to offer it to him in the form of rowing. And it was just a brilliant, brilliant leadership lesson right there. Yeah. In your book, you even said like finding your why may mean you have to quit. I think it illustrates the point that you made with that story is like sometimes like you didn't want to leave baseball. I'm, I'm sure you had no idea what rowing was. But I mean, this translates to anything. It's like you may have to end somewhere, whether it's a job that you're currently in and you move to a new organization and you found your why maybe in the next chapter. Is that kind of how you felt? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, finding your why is important. I'll get to that in a second. But this idea of a good quit, as I like to call it, is really important because quitting, especially in American culture, has such a negative connotation, you know, and really what quitting is, is you're measuring two things. Everybody does it. It doesn't matter who you are or what you're doing. You're measuring two things. You're measuring the suffering and the sacrifice of doing that certain thing or continuing to do something. How much are you going to suffer from it? Maybe that's physical or emotional, mental anguish. And how much are you going to have to give up? What are you going to have to give up to do it? So for instance, if you were to row across an ocean with me next time, your suffering would be (laughs) not going to happen. Okay, well, this will be a huge (laughs) hypothetical. But your suffering would be much greater than my suffering because I'm trained for it. I've done it a couple times. Like I know what to expect. So your suffering would be much greater, maybe even too much. You would have to say, nope, I'm out. I am unwilling to suffer that much. However, on the sacrifice side, it's very different. This depends on the opportunity cost. What are we going to have to give up? Our time with our family, our friends, our kids, our wives. And what is the opportunity cost of training and then going to do something? Those two things work constantly, even if we're not in the forefront of our mind, we're constantly measuring those. Even if you decide, oh, do we want to go out to dinner tonight or do we want to stay home and cook? What are we going to give up if we go out and what's it going to entail? This is exactly what we were doing. And that was what, you know, I had to make a decision with the baseball was that I could go get the surgery and be in a sling for six months and then have to come back on my last year of eligibility. And it wasn't worth it. The suffering and the sacrifice was too great. So I moved on. What Mark did, my coach there for rowing, he offered up that why, which is what you kind of alluded to, is that he was offering up this idea that I would be able to answer the question, why is it that I want to give all my time and energy to something? And he answered that question in the form of, hey, you could be on a team that, yeah, it's a no-name team now, but it could be something if you came and made it something. And all of a sudden, he created this great and noble this effort. And all of a sudden, rowing for a no-name team sounded like something that I really wanted to do. So fascinating. The differences of the teams between in baseball and rowing, like, what was that like? Was it an easy transition? It seems like with rowing, especially after reading your books, I don't know a lot about rowing, but hearing the stories, it seems like you have to rely on your teammates so much more than in baseball. I mean, I played baseball, so I know how right. individual of the sport it can be. I mean, I was a pitcher just like you. I'm sure you're way better than I was, but... <laughs> In a way, you can shine by yourself. With rowing, it seems like you have to be dependent on other people. 100%. You nailed it. I mean, rowing is this complete interdependency. And that's what I love about it. And I think that is what I think led me to understand the importance of building great teams. Is in baseball, yeah, you can, you know, you have a couple of big stars in that team that can operate independently. They can win you the game. That is not the case with rowing. There is after a 2,000-meter row or rowing across the ocean, there is nobody standing up there and saying, oh, that was the, the LeBron James of that team. No, no, no. There's no rugged individualism in rowing. And so you have to be okay with that. And some people aren't, by the way. Some people want to be a superstar on a team full of individuals. And that's fine, too, by the way. You can have that. That's like the, you know, the mercenary salesperson on a team. And, and we need those people. But if you want to be part of something 
kind of greater than yourself and you want to kind of achieve this level of kind of high performance, then rowing is, is a perfect sport for that person. And it took me a long time to figure that out because I had a chip on my shoulder for a long time and I was trying to be that individual contributor. So I think that's why this translates so perfect to like the business world or I mean, it could be nonprofit world too, is like you're operating with a lot of these small teams. And if you could have a star player on a team, but if you're not holding your weight and there's no purpose and a why, how's that team going to be effective? I'm sure that's what you speak on all the time, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's really, I mean, we can get into the weeds on this stuff, but essentially what I learned is that there is a difference between the best people and the right people. This difference between the greatest talent, but not necessarily the right people, and maybe not the greatest talent, but absolutely the right fit, really comes down to how you know the best leaders build these great teams is that talent is important. But let's be honest out here in this world, there is so much talent out there. So many people are doing great things. It doesn't take long for you to look behind your back and someone's already beat you at what you did that everyone thought was so amazing. Once that, you know, that level of talent is matched, what are you left with? Well, you're left with selfless individuals that are more concerned with everybody else on the team. And that's how I pick my teams now, how I recruit for these very dangerous and difficult adventures around the world. And it's a lesson that I learned. I first, I wanted to pick the biggest, strongest athletes. And I found out the hard way that once you're stripped of everything, and that doesn't have to be rowing across an ocean, that can be just being on a team that is kind of slugging through the monotony of the middle of a project. Once everything is stripped from you, you're not gonna be able to hide who you are. So you got to find out who these people are soon. A lesson that I pulled out from your book that I thought was fantastic, and I want you to elaborate on it. So you said, the worst thing in the world is not losing, it's not having purpose. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I get a lot of people after I give, you know, keynote speeches, or, you know, we start to consult with teams and different organizations. And a lot of times people come up to me in an effort to try to relate to me, say, Oh, I'm just like you, you know, I hate losing, or I never lose or something like that. And quite frankly, they're not speaking my language at all. First of all, I lose all the time. If you choose to participate in things that are difficult, then you will be very familiar with defeat. What I've realized, though, is that losing, you know, is not the worst thing, but it's really, like you said, not being part of something greater. And I'll give you a great example. When recruiting for the second time I rode across the Atlantic Ocean, putting that team together, recruiting for the right team, not the best team, I looked at things a lot differently. And my final recruit for this four-person team was a guy I knew very well. We rode together on an elite training team in Philadelphia for a number of years, had lost contact, but I found out that he just went to Olympics, the Olympic trials and fell short of the Olympic trials by mere seconds in the men's single. So he was trying to represent the United States as the single best rower. And he was one of the greatest rowers I've ever known. But he, at that particular race at Olympic trials, he fell short. He didn't make it. He didn't qualify. And I knew that he wasn't worried about the fact that he lost. He just, he spent his whole life trying to make the Olympics and now it's gone. And he was desperate desperate for something else. And I was going to offer them just like my coach at Sonoma State was offering me something after my injury. I was going to go to Matt Brown and say, I'm sorry that you lost, but I've got something else for you. And I'll tell you what, it worked perfectly. As he says, Jason didn't even have to finish the sentence. I was so in because he was so desperate for having that purpose, that thing that was going to drive high performing individuals like ourselves, because you just need that. Why? Right? What is my purpose? What is my why? What am I doing? The worst thing in the world is to just not know why am I here? What am I doing? And that is a very, very scary kind of darkness to be in. When you were first making your trek across the Atlantic, what was that whole process like? How did you build that team? How did it go that first time? 
in some ways it was a success because we were able to finish despite the circumstances, but in many ways as a leader of that team, it was a failure. So just to give a little context, is a 3,000 mile rowing race across the Atlantic Ocean that starts in the Canary Islands off the coast of Africa and goes southwest to the Caribbean. And so this first year, and it's a four person race, first year I did was 2015, 2016, 600 miles in a 300 mile race, two of my teammates were evacuated. Now, one of them was evacuated because he was in a desperate situation due to illness that he needed to get on an IV, not his fault. But the second guy that was evacuated left because he didn't want to be there anymore. He saw the opportunity, a sailboat came in, and he took the chance to get off. Now, myself and my remaining teammate, which is a great story in and of itself, and you'll get if you read my book, we finished the race. And nobody thought we would finish. And we not only finished, but we set the American record as the fastest four-man team, which is the two of us. That was a great feat, and there's a success. But as a leader, when I got back home, put the weight back on, started healing up, I realized that that was my fault. As the leader of the team, I was unable to get that second guy who evacuated, not because he was ill or injured, but because he just didn't want to be there anymore. I was unable to re-answer that question why he was here. Because let me tell you something. When you're getting all these pats on the back as you're about to do these rows and everyone wants to interview you and say, oh, you know, this is amazing what you're going to do, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, this is going to be amazing. That's not the feeling you have 600 miles into a 3,000 row where you're getting seasick and you've got salt sores everywhere and you're dehydrated and you're malnourished and sleep deprived. Now, all of a sudden, you are not thinking about it the same way. As a leader, I failed to bring that individual back to that place. And that was probably one of the ultimate failures of me as a leader and one of the ultimate lessons. And so when I went back to do it the next year, I built that team both differently and sustained that team differently. When it was just you and your partner rowing, you two were left. What kept you both going? Well, it was an organic kind of unfolding of a process that ended up being what saved us. I mean, we're sitting there as two of us in a boat made for four. You know, we're battling these waves that are 20, 35 feet that our boat's literally surfing down. And the first three days of us being by ourselves, we're getting battered by the storm. I'll be honest with you. We kind of wish that we had quit too at that point. I mean, I'm being very honest. But then... We decided to just every day take a 30-minute break in the morning and just eat breakfast together. It seems very simple. And at the point it was, it was literally just a chance because we were passing each other. It was one guy rowing for two hours while the other guy was in the small cabin sleeping. And then we'd rotate. So we never saw each other. Every two hours, we see each other for two minutes. Well, we decided, let's just have breakfast and talk. We started kind of sharing stories about things that happened to us that night and laughing and kind of having... And that all of a sudden, there was this kind of huge change that took over. And for the next 41 days, yeah, 41 days, we started to row faster and row harder. And it wasn't because we got superhuman strength. But all of a sudden, we were able every day at 8 a.m. while we had breakfast to kind of re-answer that question why, to leverage each other's human emotion in a way that we were now more afraid of letting each other down than we were of the elements. And that's a huge, huge differentiator right there. Every two hours when it was my turn to row, I'd row as hard as I could, not as hard as I thought I could, because I was petrified of letting Tom down so that when he got on the horse, he said, wow, he did a great job. And now he must live up to me. And we just did this leveraging of human emotion. And every day at eight o'clock, we'd kind of re-answer that question. Why? Not so we didn't go up to each other and say like, hey, you want to recommit to me today? Because it's not a movie like that. But like in our hearts and in our minds, that's exactly what was going on. And all of a sudden, we were doing something that no one thought was, I mean, nobody watching this race thought we were going to finish, let alone pass 14 boats and over the course of the next 41 days. 
And, you know, I think the real answer, the fun answer is that it was this leveraging of human emotion. It was probably one of the greatest moments and lessons that I've ever learned in my life. When you and Tom were having breakfast, and you talk about this throughout the book, like with these gathering points, right? Like, I think a lot of organizations, let's translate it to the business world. I think a lot of teams, they'd have these weekly or monthly meetings, and they would check in then. But I think what you and Tom were doing was something so special because you have these gathering points where you could actually realign yourselves, focus on your purpose and why you're doing this and actually get to know each other. And as you talk about throughout the book, it's leading with emotion. Like talk about all of that and why gathering points is so important. Yeah. So gathering points, whether you're in the middle of the ocean and you're taking a 30 minute breakfast or, you know, you're having a meeting with your team are opportunities to realign with your team members and with the objective. But that's just what they are. They're opportunities doesn't mean it's going to happen. So every day at 8am, we took 30 minutes to ourselves. And we didn't care if the boat wasn't going anywhere, we needed that time to have to each other. It was an opportunity that we took advantage of to the point where we were desperate for it every 24 hours. And we used it to the point where we understood where we were. Because 24 hours later, you know, throughout the process, we were getting beat up by storms. We had a lot of other things going on. Just like an organization, you take these opportunities to gather, to get together, to realign, to make everyone understand and not just assume they know what's going on, but to know what's going on. Because we are all human beings that have different things going on in our lives. So you go home, you have stressors at home with your family, you've got other things going on. So when you get back to work, you can't assume that your team is aligned as they were the day before, the week before, the month before, the year before. So I always encourage teams to kind of try to find as many places that they can gather together. And sometimes that's a formal meeting in a room together. Other times it's informal gatherings. It might be something that you do after work. It might be drinks. It might be dinner. Sometimes it's as simple as just a conversation you have as you stop by someone's desk just to talk. Those are places and those are opportunities that you can realign. You have to look at them that way, though. You can't just say, oh, we haven't talked in a while. Let's all get together. It's not like that humans are very intelligent. We understand when people are just going through the motions or when it's a real, authentic alignment. So you and Tom finish like 11th out of, is that right? Yeah, 11th out of 26 teams. Okay, that's right. So then for some crazy reason, you decided to do this again. So you're building the team. What are you looking for in that team? Because there's a quote that I like that you said, recruiting is like gambling. You do your best to make an informed choice, but ultimately the end result is often out of your control, end quote. And I think with any like team that you're trying to put together, there is some gambling in forming that team. Because I think like for somebody like me, especially, you would look at rowing like, oh, whoever probably is strongest and works the hardest, they're probably to come out on top. But I think you look at it differently. I think you're trying to form a team that's probably leading with emotion first and looking for a perfect fit, right? And somebody who has purpose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a gamble, by the way, because if you choose to do difficult things and where there's extenuating circumstances that are out of your control, ultimately, you can't plan it perfectly. So when building the teams, you have to decide what are the qualities of individuals that you're recruiting for. And for a lot of people, it's talent, right? It's what's on paper. What have they done? All this stuff that is, to a certain extent, things that we obviously need to look for. I'm not going to put someone in my boat that's never rowed before. That's just not going to happen. But if you choose to do difficult things and rowing across the Atlantic is difficult, like I said before, 
eventually it will be the emotions of the individuals that will ultimately dictate how successful you're going to be. And so I decided what's the number one attribute or personality trait that I want in this boat. And after having done it the year before, I realized it was selflessness. That was it. I wanted selfless people in that boat, people that were a little bit more interested in how everybody else was doing than they were in themselves. Knowing that if I had a boat full of people that were always looking out after each other, that they would be taken care of. And so that's what I did. That's what I recruited for or hired for is selflessness. And it's easy also, by the way, to fake selflessness. You know, when you're interviewing or you can find out what people are looking for and you can tell everyone that's what you are. And that's why we went out there and we rode a lot and we were out in our boat. We had nine months to prepare for a race that the rest of the teams that we were competing against had spent two years for. But we went out on that boat, not to row, not to get stronger, but to learn about each other. So we'd take that boat out in San Francisco, which is where I'm living and where the boat is. And once we got the team together, we just push out beyond that Golden Gate and just let the Pacific beat us up. Just see what people do. See if anyone makes you know food for the team. See what people are doing. When it started to show itself that all that selflessness was coming to the forefront when things got hard, I knew this is going to sound a little audacious, but I knew before we even got to the start line on that race that we were going to win that race. I remember looking at my wife as we were having a team dinner. And we had friends and family and it was all in our hometown and we were leaving in two weeks to go to the start line again. And I just looked at her and said, we're going to win. We are going to win. Obviously, we did. So why your story translates to the business world or any organization for that matter is so fascinating to me because I look at this and I'm like, especially reading your book, it sounded like you're not getting paid a whole lot. You're not getting huge sponsorships. You truly rallied around this purpose and you had teammates that were aligned really well. And I look at any organization, it's like, I'm sure teams are, you know, they're not getting paid a ton, but somehow some teams could be really effective, even if they don't get paid a lot, but they're rallying around some purpose. Talk about that and why that's so important. Yeah, sure. No, we're not getting paid. We had corporate sponsorship to help pay for our, get our boat and all the transportation and shipping and all that stuff. But nobody's getting paid for ocean rowing, that's for sure. <laughs> I wish. But I think there is collective goals for the team, right? What we want to achieve as a team, what the objective is. But then we do have individual goals and we have individual motivators. And here's the thing. You need to know what those individual motivators are for everybody in your team. And by the way, it can be money if it is. I mean, people do work because they need a paycheck and that's okay. So other people, their biggest motivator might be purpose, like we talked about before. The other one might be security, knowing that they have work. Others, it might be, you know, to the job fits well in with the time. They get more time to their families because of the way it's scheduled. Maybe they don't have to commute as much anymore. You have to understand what the individual and each of your teams, what their individual motivators are. And you need to be able to help them work towards seeing that out just as much as you see the team objective for. And by the way, they won't tell you the truth if they don't trust you. So as a leader, if I have a team, I'm leading, let's say a team of four, and they don't trust me, they don't know me very well, I've not opened myself up, and I ask them what motivates them. And an individual that is motivated by money, he's afraid to say that because maybe he thinks that that's going to look really selfish if I say money is my biggest motivator. But in the end, we don't know why it's money. Maybe it's because he just found out that his wife is going to have twins or you got, he's got two kids that are about to go to college or something like that. There is nothing wrong with having money be your an ultimate motivator. But you need as the leader of that team to know that because if you keep throwing this guy more time off or give him more purpose or more challenge, 
And all he really wants is a roadmap to get the next raise. You're really, really, really just struggling. Ultimately, also, if you think someone's motivated by money and all they really want is to have a little bit more time at home and you keep throwing them more money, they don't care. So there's a collective objective for the team, which needs to be clear and keep being stated and realigned on. But there's also individual motivators that you need to be able to understand clearly and they need to be able to tell you the truth. And they're only going to do that if they trust you. There's a quote that I loved, and I think it illustrates the point that you're making, but also just shows the comparison between like a leader's role and the individual and how you align people. So the quote says, nobody gets up at 5am and rows 10,000 meters because they like their coach. They do it because at the end of those meters is the person they truly want to become, end quote. And I think that it's such a great point because like a coach could kind of nudge you and lead you. But at the end of the day, it's up to the individual to figure out who they want to become. And they're the one putting in the work and working with the team. So maybe talk about that and translate it how like your teams operated in that sense. Absolutely. I'll just start off by saying that nobody likes work. And this is someone oh, so people are rolling their eyes right now. Of course, I like work. I enjoy work. And nobody likes the actual work. Nobody likes putting the oars in and pulling them, it hurts, it's uncomfortable. But what we do like, we like what's in the work, what you just alluded to, we like what we become, because we do the work. This is why we do things, you know, so we are trying to become, you know, better versions of ourselves. And by the way, and I'm, this leads to the next part, this is what I truly believe is the underlying motivation of individuals that want to do great things and being able as a leader to kind of harness, you know, that collective energy for the betterment of your objective is that, you know, we hear people say things like life is short, life is short. Nobody actually believes life is short. Okay, we say it, but we don't actually believe it. Okay, whether life is short or long, I don't know, I guess it depends on what you're comparing it to. But if people truly believe that life is short, they do all the things they want to do, right? They get off their butts and off the couch, and they'd go get that job, they would learn that new language, they'd run that marathon, they'd ask that girl out the coffee shop that they keep putting off, they would do these things, because they realize life is short. But we don't, right? We believe life is actually long and we actually think that we have another day, another week, another year. I'll lose those 15 pounds next year. You know, I'll apply for that job. I'll ask that girl out next time. That's the problem here is that if you truly believe life is long, then we put this stuff up. The great individual performers are the ones that truly believe in their heart of hearts that life is extremely short. And if I don't do it today or I don't do it this week, may never get done. And I love the urgency by which those types of people live their lives and kind of go after their goals and their dreams. When you're building a team, let's translate it to you're building a team for the boat. I imagine that on paper, you could probably easily handpick people that are strong, they would row fast. But I mean, you talk about the emotional state of people so often throughout the book and why that's so important. How do you basically recruit for that? Like, what did you do to build the right team? And what are you looking for in that recruiting process? Yeah, so I think that, yeah, I've been lucky now that we've had some success doing different adventures. And I do one big epic world record attempt every year. So now, you know, my first time, I could barely find enough people to fill the boat. Now we get people that are coming all the time that they want to be part of the next Lat 35 adventure team or world record attempt. So I'm fortunate that now I've got a much, you know, much deeper pool to actually pull from. So it actually becomes a lot harder because we're in the first race, like kind of like, well, this is all we got. So this is who we've got. We're going to make the best out of this. Where now I've got decisions to make. And I think it goes back to picking the qualities of the people that you are the things that you think are the most important and the people that you think have those qualities 
And then you've got to go out and test it. And that's okay if you're wrong, because when you go out and test these things, you might have these people that weren't quite the people that you thought. It's not that they're bad people. They just don't have the qualities that you thought, in which case now you have a responsibility as a leader. And this is a tough one to move them to a place where they can find that something greater that they want to be part of. I mean, you've got to find people that want to be part of your something greater. And if they don't at that moment, you've got to convince them to be part of your something greater. And if you can't convince them, then you must at that point make the tough decision to move them to a place that they can feel that. And sometimes that's within an organization and sometimes that's without. That means cutting people, firing people, letting them go. And that's okay because let me tell you something. If they don't want to be part of your something greater and you can't convince them, you're just doing them, yourself, and the entire team a disservice by keeping them on board. And believe me, they'll thank you for it. Maybe not at the time that you move them out, but they will eventually, as they find their place, thank you for the opportunity to find that something greater. So hire for the qualities that you see in a person, and then your job is to convince them to be part of your something greater. I think those are the two steps that I would say you're well on your way if you're doing those two things. Uh, so well said. If you're speaking to an audience right now, which I imagine you do quite a bit, what is one thing from your story that you would tell people in the business world, nonprofit world, whatever it is that you would say, like, I learned this, this is how it translates to your world. And here's what you need to do. Like, what would you say to them? I'm going to go back to life is short. I'm going to reiterate this point, because here's the deal. Life, whether it's long or short, you need to believe that it's short and you need to act now have a sense of urgency, whether that's to build a team to build a company to take a company from one point to the next point, there has to be a sense of urgency. Rowing across the Atlantic Ocean the first time, it could have been put off, could have been put off. It's a long, arduous process. Choosing to go back, not two years from now, five years from now, but the very next year to do that sounds crazy, but it needed to happen. There was a sense of urgency that maybe I never do it. Maybe I don't sit here and talk to you right now because I chose not to strike and have that sense of urgency. So Whatever you're trying to accomplish, you need to keep pushing. You need to find ways to make that stuff happen. Jason Caldwell, your book is Navigating the Impossible, Build Extraordinary Teams and Shatter Expectations. Where can people learn more about you, what you're up to, and get the book? If you're an Instagram person, going to our handle at Team Latitude 35 is a great way to stay updated on what we're doing and get the link to the book there. Also, our website latitude35racing.com right on the top there's a link to find this book and also you can contact on both those platforms contact us and you will get me or one of my teammates to literally talk you through whatever questions you might have we're here for you thanks jason 